Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Rabbi Dan Lieberman and this is the third and final session in our Family Feuds and Faribbles Shiorim. vague word when we deal with uh, Jewish history because yeah I told I was speaking to someone the other day about Kabbalat Shabbat and I said oh yeah Kabbalat Shabbat's a, a modern it's a very modern innovation in the prayer and he said well how modern is it I said well it's about 500 years old <laughs> so that's quite that's quite that's quite modern modern for us and so we're going to do sort of more modern arguments and uh, we'll see we'll see where we get to so the first one is, is really a, a very important argument and dispute in, I think, in, in, in Jewish history because it, it really it signals the end, or the beginning of the end, of rabbis being in charge and, and the beginning of the Enlightenment and people sort of moving away from, moving away from religion. So it's the beginning of that. And... In order to understand it, we have to go back all the way to 1649. We got to go to 1649, and in 1649 there was a rise, the rise of a certain gentleman who was, uh, by all means, a lunatic, uh, called Shabtai Tzvi. Right. So we need to talk about Shabtai Tzvi. Now Shabtai Tzvi, Shabtai Tzvi was a false messiah. Nothing new about false messiahs. We've had lots of them. Some of them, some of them become famous, and some of them don't become famous. Shabtai Tzvi was born in, in Turkey, Greece, that type of area. That's where he was. He was born, and that's where he operated a lot of his time. Of course, his, his influence spread across the world. We'll talk about it now. Um, and he ended up dying in Constantinople. So, when there's problems for the Jewish people, when there are persecutions there's always it's very you can map it all the way through history when there's a big persecution a big trouble then false messiahs appear because we have this concept of the wars of Gog and Magog from from the books of the Bible and we have this idea that before Mashiach comes before the Messiah appears there's going to be terrible situations and the Jewish people are going to be in in very dire circumstances and therefore, every time we end up in dire circumstances, certain people take the opportunity to latch on to these, these ancient prophecies that we have and paint themselves into the picture of, of Mashiach. Exactly the same thing happened with the birth of Christianity. right? Exactly the same. right? A guy comes and he says he's the Mashiach and then he gets a load of followers. Now, it doesn't usually end up being a two billion person religion. Uh, that was uh, that's an anomaly, but it happened many times in history. And one of those times was in 1649. Now, before 1649, what precipitated this, um, what laid the grounds for Shabtai Tzvi's uh, false messiahship, was something called, in Hebrew, we call it Tachvatat, um, re- relating to the, the Hebrew year. In English, it's known as the Chilmanitsky massacres. 
Now, in 1648 and 1649, those, those, those are the Hebrew years, uh, a Cossack leader called Bogdan Khmelnytsky, a very evil man, marched across Eastern Europe. He was, he's, he's now seen as a Ukrainian folk hero. But he marched across Europe and he killed large amounts of Jews. He was massacring Jews. He led his Cossack armies. All the, you know, the, you've seen Fiddle on the Roof, right? Right, so that's, that's based on that idea. On, on they were so afraid of the Cossacks because of his fellow. So it was, it was absolutely, I think a third of the Jewish people were killed in, across Eastern Europe. It was absolutely, it was an awful, awful situation. Then suddenly in 1649, oh, the saviour appears. Very charismatic, genius, Kabbalist, got all, you know, all, all the X's. It, it, it works, you know, it's perfect. And he leads this, group called the Sabbateans, and he leads the in, a large amount of the people of Israel astray. And they follow him and they, they start doing all sorts of weird things and, and going, going against the Torah and going, really, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a nutter, he was schizophrenic. And he, 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 was, he, was, he, was, he was active for, for many years, all the way until uh, into the 1650s, 1660s, and he finally died after converting to Islam in, in the 1670s. Now, there was many rabbis came up and, and stood and fought, fought against him. And the, the, the real epicenter of the fight against uh, Shabbatai Tzvi was Amsterdam. The Jews of Amsterdam were very strongly against him. Now, Amsterdam is a very interesting place because it's a, a, a very nice mixture of Ashkenaz Jews and Sephardi Jews, Jews of Spanish and Portuguese origin, who escaped to Amsterdam after the, the uh, Spanish Inquisition kicked all the Jews out in, in the expulsion in 1492, and the Portuguese Jews in 1497, a lot of Jews went to Amsterdam. From Amsterdam, they resettled England. So one of the first, one of the first rabbis to, to fight against Shabtai Tzvi was the first ever rabbi back into England in 1655. His name was Chacham Yaakov Saspotas. Um, he was the first and most vocal rabbi against Shabtai Tzvi, and very, very interesting, he, he implemented halachot, He's got a fabulous book uh, called Ohel Yaakov. You should, you, if you, his, his questions and answers. Uh, he lasted two years in England, and then he went back to fight uh, um, Shabtai Tzvi in, in, uh, in. He came from in, in Europe, but he came back. He came from Amsterdam, an absolutely fabulous rabbi. In fact, you know the the, the Sephardim they they uh, they have the tradition to do Birkat Kohanim, Duchening on Shabbat, right? And in Israel they do it every day, but he instituted that they only should do it on Shabbat. And the Spanish and Portuguese Jews only do it on Shabbat. And the reason for that is because the, the Shabbatai Tzvi lot were doing it every day. And he wanted to make a differentiation between them and the, the original Jews. He was a very, very strong rabbi. The other, the other rabbi who was, the, who, was against, who was strongly against the, the Sabbatean movement, as they became to be called, was a rabbi of the Ashkenaz shul in, in Amsterdam, Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi. Right now, that's the groundwork for all of this. What we're going to talk about now, because there was an argument, a vicious and strong argument in the Jews in the Jews of, of Europe in the 1700s. So about 50, 60, 70 years after Shabtai Tzvi, and it all starts with a rabbi called Rabbi Yonatan Ibershitz. Rabbi Yonatan Ibershitz. He was born in Krakow, in Poland in 1690. His father was a rabbi in a place called Eibeschitz, which is how he got his name. 
Um, those days you just took whatever name you wanted. He was given that name, Ibishes. And his father died very young. And his mother was was a widow. And uh, her, she sent her son off to Vienna, where he was taken in by uh, a very wealthy Jew who looked after him. But he didn't last long over there. And he went to, to back to his mother in Prozhnitz. And he studied with uh, the Rabbi uh, Meir Eisenstadt. It was a very, very great rabbi. He wrote a book called Panemiris. It doesn't matter now. We won't go into that. And he found uh, his mother died in 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 Prozhnitz. And Rabbi Yonison Ibishitz, as a young boy, moved into. He was he was such a genius that he was taken in by Rabbi Yitzchok Shapiro, who was the the chief rabbi of Prague at the time. And he lived in in Rabbi Shapiro's house. And he was such a good guy. And he was so clever. And he was such a hard worker that Rabbi Shapiro married his daughter to Rabbi Yonatan Ibishitz. Right? He said, let's make a shidduch. And for many years, he, st- he lived in the father-in-law's house, and he studied Torah, and he became known as a brilliant, brilliant scholar. And at the age of 18 years old, he was invited to become a rabbi. He was invited to become a rabbi of his first, his first community, Jung Brunsal, in, che- in Czechoslovakia. Three years later, he went to Prague, he came, came back to Prague, and he became the head of the yeshiva there. He was studying in the yeshiva. He, st- he studied and studied and studied. He returned to Prague. And he had a huge reputation as uh, a, a Torah authority. Now, he, once he'd mastered all the known Torah, he became interested and started studying the Kabbalah. Now, at the time, the Kabbalah was seen as something very dangerous because Shabtai Tzvi, right? The Shabtai Tzvi is still, the, the, his, his name is still lingering around. And Shabtai Tzvi was dabbling in the Kabbalah and doing all sorts of strange things. So, Kabbalah was almost off limits. But Rabbi Yonasai Shabbat's, he, was, uh, he started to study and he started preaching and he started teaching and he became well-known all over the place. Even the, 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 the Christian bishops used to come and discuss the, uh, the, the Bible with him. He was, he was very well-known. And he used his influence to get the bishop to allow them to print, because only the church had, had control of the print, uh, all the printing presses. And he wanted to print the, the Gemara, the print of the town, but the church had banned it because it had anti-Christian references in, which is true. Um, if you want to have a look, famous one, Sanhedrin 43a. Uh, if you want to have a look, but that's not for now. Um, so what he did was he censored the Gemara and he took out all the offensive passages so that they were able to to uh, to uh, get the get the Gemara printed. And in fact, that's the the, the model that we have today. Uh, it's recently been put, put back in. So this is 1741. 1741. He travels to Metz and impresses all the people in Metz, and everything is. Everything is going well. He lives in he lives in, in Metz, 1741. He becomes the chief rabbi there. He looks after all his family, join him in 1742, because there's a war going on between the French and the Bohemians. There's all sorts of things going on in the world at this time, and the Austrians are, are reigning, and this one, it's all, it's all going off. He's never returned to Prague. He wasn't allowed to go back to Prague. But he, become, he comes in Metz, and he becomes a very important rabbi in Metz. Now, at the time when he's in Metz, in the 1740s, there are a lot of children being born and getting sick. So he starts to write amulets, Kabbalistic amulets, 
to help the children, help the mothers give birth and to, to, to pray for them. They're, they're, don't ask me how they work. I don't know. I'm not a Kabbalist. But there's a, a very well accepted thing. And I've actually seen a picture of one of them. And he wrote these, he wrote these amulets to help people. And he held his post there in, in Metz for nine years. Many people came to study at his yeshiva there. Um, and in 1750, he moved back to Central Europe and a place called Altona. Altona, Hamburg and Wandsbeck. Right? Those were, that was called the triple community. Each one of them was under different, it was under different jurisdictions of different people. Altona, Hamburg and Wandsbeck. And they had one chief rabbi and he was, he was elected chief rabbi there in 1750. Now, once again, there's a huge uptick in people dying and child, women dying, childbirth and children dying young. He produces uh, the amulets, what's called a Khmer, and he wrote a number of them and it was good. 1751, a Sabbatean is captured. One of these adherents, this is almost 100 years after Shabtai Tzvi, has got with him a whole load of Sabbatean propaganda and books and study and stuff in there that seems to be have written by Rabbi Yonatan Ibershitz. So which alerts some people to start thinking about what's going on with this guy. Is this chief rabbi, this very important, hugely famous, amazing rabbi who's written hundreds and hundreds of books? Is he a Sabbatean? A closet Sabbatean? Is he one of these heretics? Is he a bad guy? So then they start examining these amulets that he's been writing. And it seems to be from those who are experts in them that there are references, covert references to Shabbatai Tzvi in these amulets. And it all goes off. And it's led by a man called Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Now, why Rabbi Yaakov Emden is important is... Because Rabbi Yaakov Emden is the son of Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi from Amsterdam. So his father led the original crusade against Shabtai Tzvi. And Rabbi Yaakov Emden, a great scholar, a great writer, he also owned a printing press, which is very important. So he was viciously against these people. So, of course, he learnt at the foot of his father, his father being the foremost the antagonist against uh, against Shabtai Tzvi and he was determined to ferret and root out all the evil all the Shabtai Tzvi all this nonsense from the, from the Jewish community he wanted to, to uproot it all and destroy it and he'd followed his father everywhere from the age of 18 he'd followed his father all over the place he learnt in many great yeshivas in Brod uh, in Moravia, uh, he learnt with Rabbi Naftali Mordechai ben Naftali Akoen huge, huge great rabbi and he in, was the rabbi in a place called Emden. That's why he gets his name, Rabbi Yaakov Emden. And he's also known by his acronym, Yivitz, the Yivitz. Most amazing, also amazing rabbi. So he arrives in Altona in 1733, and he sets himself up there as a rabbi, and he spends the rest of his life, 40 years, fighting with Sabbateans. Now, of course, in 1750... Rabbi Yonas and Ibershitz appears in Altona as the rabbi. And he starts looking into it. 
um, Rabbi Yaakov Emden starts looking into this sort of thing. So he, he, he suspects him of being involved with Shabtai Tzvi. He denounced him in public. He excommunicated him. And he used his printing press to print all sorts of books and pamphlets and all sorts of uh, bans and excommunications against the new rabbi. And he deciphered all these mystical writings and he was looking at all this, all this sort of stuff. And it became massive. It became a huge, a huge thing. And the, the, the rabbis, the rab, chief, he's gone against the chief rabbi. So the chief rabbi, Rabbi Ibershitz, produces a ban against Rabbi Emden and kicks him out of Altona, his own, his own city. Um, and then he goes off to his brother and he goes back to Amsterdam and he continues the fight from Amsterdam and he writes to the Council of Rabbis of the Four Lands. That was the, all the rabbis in charge of, of, of the area. And he, he presses his charges against it. And finally, Rabbi Onesen Ibershitz does something which no rabbi has ever done before. And he brings his case to the king of Denmark. Now, Denmark was one of the jurisdictions of the third of the three communities. The triple the Altona was in Denmark, was under the jurisdiction of, of the king of Denmark. So he brings it before the king of Denmark. Never have we heard such a thing before that you go to a non-Jewish a non-Jewish authority to, dis, to to settle a Jewish dispute. What do they know from uh, what do they know from from, from Judaism and what do they know from anything? Um, and the king of Denmark rules, and they have a whole, they have a whole discussion, and they rule that Rabbi Yonatan Ibershitz is innocent, and he can go back to his his post, but they should have a vote again, and he should be voted in again. So he gets voted in again, and then one of the three communities, Hamburg, says, actually, we're not very happy with this. This is a terrible situation, and it kicks off, and it's all all out war in Central European Jewry over this whole idea that the greatest rabbi that we've got and, and let's 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 not make any bones about it Rabbi Yonison Ibershitz was a prolific writer his works are studied in every single yeshiva his works on the Shulchan Aruch Kratio Plati which is just f mind blowing stuff he's got some un unbelievable or in the Toymim as well on, on certain other areas of Shulchan Aruch just really a fabulous writer um his his uh, Yaris Devash, Ferris Yonison. He's got so many books which are absolutely, you know, he was a genius and an amazing writer. But he has this mark against him. So, what's going to happen? The whole of Jewry is kidding itself. They call the they, 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 the king of Denmark gets involved because people are behaving badly, but people are burning down shuls and people are fighting, and it's it's really getting ugly. And in steps an unknown man. In seventeen. Um, in 1745, Rabbi Yecheskel Landau from Yampol, an unknown young rabbi at the time, an unknown young rabbi, in, later on to become one of the foremost uh, rabbis in Europe. He wrote a book called the Noda Biyahuda. Um, you may have heard of him. He was Rabbi Yecheskel Landau, ended up being the chief rabbi of Prague, uh, appointed chief rabbi in Prague in, um, in 1755. And Rabbi Cheskel Landau, an unknown man, nothing to do with nothing to do with the fight, he says, I, I don't actually like this. <laughs> this is a really bad idea. So what he does is he writes a letter. And he writes a, a letter and he writes a, a, uh, a pamphlet, basically giving both sides a way to get out of this fight without losing too much face. And he made a halachic ruling and he said that. Rabbi Yonis and Ibershitz never signed any of those things with his name 
any of those amulets or any of those works that you think are Sabbatean, he never signed them with his name. So we can't halakhically rule that it was him, because we don't know. That gives Rabbi Yonis and Ibishitz a way out. And he also said, to placate the other side, these things are terrible in the Sabbatean. So each side was able to pull out of the argument without losing too much face and say, oh, well, I was right. And that's the difficult thing, right? When everybody's having an argument, you know, once you're deeply into it and you're committed to having your argument, you end up not wanting to lose, to lose too much. I remember I said a story that I heard, um, a story of the Tzemach Tzedek. I heard it from uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson um, about children and adults. Remember that I told that story on, uh, on Ashana Yom Kippur last year? I think it was the year before. So he's asked a question. So someone asked the Tzemach Tzedek, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, or the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, uh, why, why do adults bear grudges and children don't bear grudges? So he said that, that children choose being happy over being right. And adults choose being right over being happy. Right? You know, I'll not talk to someone for the rest of my life, but I'm right, right? <laughs> so uh, that's the same thing over here. So what the Noidi Behuda did, amazing idea, right? What he does is he creates a situation where both sides are able to say that they're right. And he steps in and he diffuses the whole thing. Now, of course, it carries on. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't disappear overnight. But his tactful intervention into this story, and he's a nobody at the time. He's not a, he's, he's a rabbi of Yampol in the middle of nowhere. No one's ever heard of him. And he steps in, he puts his neck out, and he does something, and he, he, he does something which no one else had the guts to do. And he goes and, and, and diffuses this whole battle by, by enabling them to, to take away their issues. And that's, I think, an important thing for us when, we, when we're analysing arguments. Nobody has a monopoly on, on who's right and who's wrong. When you have an argument, you know, there's always a bit of anything in there. If you want to diffuse an argument, whether it's between yourself and someone else, which is a lot harder, but if it's between two other people and you want to try and help them out, try and give them something to hang on to. Try and give them something that they can take out of it, that they can, they're not going to get hurt too much. So that the, the, what they're giving up to... to, to take this step to, to remove the argument isn't too harsh for them at that time and then they'll be able to, to, to step away from it better. So that is a very, and that story, I could tell you that story for hours and days on end, I'll just run through it quickly. There's fabulous books, Rabbi Pinny Dunn has written a fabulous book about it um, and you should certainly buy that from, from Amazon um, and, and, and look at his sort of stuff. His stuff is absolutely brilliant in great, great detail. But that's just a quick, I think the, 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 the emergence of the Noida Behuda Rabbi Cheska Landau into this story is the real key over here. Arguments are arguments, but there is always someone, and someone who, you know, he, was an, he wasn't really a big rabbi at the time, and he put his neck out, and he put himself out there, you know, we can also try and do something like that. So let's have a look. We're going to do a, a move on to another thing, again, around the same time, a bit further on into history, but not too much further on. Yeah. Shabtai's feet was wrong, but he said that we can't live like this. We can't carry on. I mean, people were beating each other up in the street. It was just, it was, it was, it was, yeah, that's why the king of Denmark got involved. So it, it just, it was just too terrible. And he said, oh, we can't, just can't do it anymore. And you have to do something to deal with it. Rabbi, what is the prevailing religious consensus 
was he a follower of Shabbatai III or not? Well, his 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 son, his son was his son Wolf came out later on in his life as as a follower of Shabbatai Tzvi. Um, he was also he was also the particular rabbi that a certain Moses Mendelssohn went to uh, went to meet, and that's why he, he was really the beginning of the. This is the beginning of the Enlightenment, and this is the beginning of big change going on in the world. So, was he a Sabbatean? I don't know. I don't. I, I I'm not qualified to make that call. Historically, in Turkey, up to a generation of my grandmother, there were still the Dunma. Yeah, the Dunma. The Dunma was a was a thing. But, but this guy was this. So this is not Dunma. This is not Dunma. This is yeah. This is not Dunma. This is different. Dunma were the three hundred families who converted to Islam with Shabtai Tzvi. This is a different story. This is a different story. But yeah, I, I say I'm not qualified uh, enough to make calls on on whether he was or he wasn't. Uh, there's there. I don't really think there's many of them around. They're in Turkey. They were. They said Ataturk was 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 descended from Dunma, but again, you know, there's no proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappeared. No, everyone knows about it. Everyone knows about it, but it's just sort of yeah, okay, fine. And it's very interesting. They're they're buried very close to each other. <laughs> um, uh, and they, they never really, even in their lifetimes, they never, they, you know, Rabbi Ibishitz died long before Rabbi, Rabbi Emden did. And it ne- didn't end. It didn't end, but it, it calmed down a lot. And that's the important thing. All right, the next one. I don't know if this is going to, uh, going to, uh, it's linked to the, to the previous one, but we'll, uh, this one is even, I don't know if it's even finished. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can learn from this one. So, at a very early age, there was a young man in a place called Vilna who started developing and displaying a great intellect. At the age of seven, he gave his first drosha. Seven. And he was a genius. Um, by the time he's ten, he didn't need a teacher anymore. Um, when he was a young man, he wandered from community to community, and he came back to Vilna. And he was feigned as a sadic. At the age of 35, Rabbi Yonis and Ibishitz called him and asked him to mediate between him and Rabbi Akvenden, um, try and deal with the previous story. But this was, he became known as the genius of Vilna, Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer, the Vilna go on. Um, and his diligence in study of Torah was unsurpassable. Um, he did not sleep more than two hours a night. He studied all day and all night. His breadth of knowledge was amazing. He could state from memory the number of times each person was mentioned in the whole of the Gemara. Um, he, he knew Kabbalah, he knew written Torah, he knew everything. Um, he also was very knowledgeable in, in uh, secular studies as well. He wrote books on maths. I think there's a Kramer's Law of Geo- Geometry, uh, which is attributed to him. Um, he's written books about grammar uh, and mathematics. He was a very, uh, very, very wise and, and clever man, as known as a genius. He was also very kind, gave away 20% of his very meagre income to charity. Um, he redeemed captives, he married off orphans, he was constantly diligent in learning, but he would always interrupt his uh, studies to uh, meet with people's relatives, to help people out, to sick people, the people who need to go on. 
Um, Vilna Gorn was an amazing person, and he studied in isolation for 40 years. He never had, he never had a position. There was no position in Vilna. He had a little. He wasn't a rabbi of a shul, a rabbi of a community. He was just, you know, a genius. He was someone who studied Torah for the for the for sake of it. After 40 years of his study, he decided he's going to take on some students. One of them who was called Rabbi Chaim Velozhin, who started the first yeshiva in Velozhin. And I've been to that yeshiva. All, all yeshivas are descended from that yeshiva, what's known as Aim HaYeshivot, the mother of all the yeshivas. Um, so uh, it was the premier study of uh, Torah in, in Eastern Europe for 100 years. Um, lots of interesting things about that. I think Rabbi Dunner's got a... Uh, uh, two hours to share on that as well which is very 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 interesting and you can get that on youtube um one of the vilna Gorn's biggest contributions to uh jewish study was his notes on the the gemara he had notes on the gemara because um, the gemara was n not printed it was handwritten so there was lots of different discrepancies in people's editions of the gemaras and he sorted all of them out because he'd learned all of them and he remembered them all and he worked out which one was the right one. And that, 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 he was the only person who could have done that because his head was an encyclopedia. Um, not talking about the Torah, we're talking about the, you know, the Gemara and all sorts of other things. So he wanted to, he, he also developed the desire to study, to go and live in the land of Israel. Uh, he never actually made it, but his students were the first settlers to the land of Israel. You know, you see the Yerushalmi Jews, the ones with the stripy clothes. Right, those are the descendants of the Vilna Gaon. They keep one one the ki the keeping of one day Yomtev in the land of Israel is based on the teachings of the Vilna Gaon. Those guys, you see them with strimals and stuff and stripy coats. They're not they're not Hasidic. They daven Ashkenaz. They are they're Lithuanians. They just dress like that because they 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 have the Sephardi and the Sephardi clothes, the stripy clothes that were the that were the there the people. They wanted to make peace between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim who were there, so they took on the Ashkenazi hats and the Sephardi clothes. And to, to show that you know that a person could could wear both, and be both there. That's the the Yerushalmi. They're the students of the Vilna Gaon. Um, anyway, so in the 1730s, in Ukraine, to modern day Ukraine, there was a movement founded by Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov called the Hasidus movement. And Hasidim started changing Jewish practices. They changed the order of the prayers. They changed the nusach. They changed the different ways of the prayer. They said that uh, going to study was not the only way that you could get to God. And they were get involved in storytelling and singing and dancing and, and delirium and all sorts of things. And they focused on mysticism and ideas of spirituality that had no, no relation to the traditional way of getting to spirituality, which was by study, hard work, and study of the Torah. And this was um, huge. Remember, we are living in the shadow of Shabbatai Tzvi, and the whole world is against this weird idea of some guy coming up and saying, this is amazing, and follow me, which was what Hasidic Rebbes were doing. And the Vilna Gaon was very, very worried about it. He was very worried about it. Remember, this is the Lithuania. They've had, they've got, they've been through Shabtai Tzvi, then Jacob Frank, another false messiah in the 1720s. Um, many, many rabbis 
were suspicious of Chas- the Hasidic movement of being involved in this. So they called themselves the Misnagdim, the opponents. The yeah, Mitnagdim. And in 1772, in 1772, the rabbis were so concerned, they sent letters to all the people banning Hasidism. Put a cherim on, 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 Hasidic, on Hasidic practices to close the shuls, to burn the Hasidic books, um, humiliating all the rabbis. They imprisoned Hasidic leaders. Um, they didn't want to have them anything to do. In 1772, the Vilna Gon wrote a letter excommunicating all Hasidic Jews in the world. Right? It was massive. It was absolutely massive. And the reason he did so was because they were diluting the traditional practices of Judaism and replacing it. What he was worried was that people would stop studying Torah and replace it with singing and dancing and all that sort of stuff. And the whole idea of Torah study and scholarship, which has sustained the Jewish people all the way through until now, would disappear because people, human beings, like their instant gratification. If you can get to heaven by singing and dancing and clapping and going off to some dead guy's grave in Uman uh, before Rosh Hashanah and leaving your wife behind, um, yeah, which, you know, that's going on right now, even COVID or no COVID, then... If you can do that, then why would you get involved in in any in any hard work? Studying studying Torah. And that's what the Vilna Gorm was worried about. So he banned it. He put a ban. He, he pronounced a ban. Remember, he's in Vilna. There's no Hasidim there. These Hasidim are in Shtetler here, there, and everywhere. And each Rebbe's got 20 followers and, and this, that, and the other. And it's becoming a thing. Until he starts interacting with Hasidim in Lithuania. Now, one of the biggest and the most well-known uh, Hasidic group in Lithuania was, at that time, Chabad. This is the time of the first Rebbe of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, Rishnei Adi. And his followers are now in Lithuania. And start going, getting very difficult. In 1777, he writes another ban. And in 1785, he writes another ban. And he's banning, and they're, they're, they're fighting against this whole idea to remove this, 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 this badness that he sees from Judaism, this laziness, this idea. Now, at the end, at the end of his life, he was still very, very, very much against it. When he died, the Hasidic rabbis, especially Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, who never, they never met each other and they never corresponded, but... He, he banned his, he, he, he prohibited his followers from celebrating the death of the Vilna Gon and said that he was a great man and a great Torah scholar and he had his way and we have our way. And the controversy was carrying on and on and on and it died a natural death on its own. Hasidism was never going anywhere and Torah study was also never going anywhere because you need Torah study and even the Hasidim started to recognize that you need Torah study because otherwise it all disappears. And the opponents, the Misnagdim, started recognizing that actually not everybody is geared up for, stu- for a hard study of Torah and they really want to have another way of connecting with God. And they sort of declared a, a, a cold peace around, in, around the, 1800, the year of 1800. And then all thoughts of argument went out of the window because in 1815, Reform Judaism starts. 
And then they're not interested in each other anymore. They're only interested in both of them fighting against that. Because that's really bad. That's really against, that's really against the Torah. That's really against you know, Judaism. And that's so much is anti-Judaism. And, and I say, the Reform Judaism of then and Reform Judaism now is not the same thing. It's a completely different animal as to, as to now. Reform Judaism now and Reform Judaism in 1815 are not the same thing. Oh, the old one, much worse. Yeah, Reform Judaism today is basically institutionalized irreligiosity. <laughs> That's basically what it is. But Reform Judaism in 1815 was was the idea that we don't need to go to we don't need to go back to Israel. We don't need to be involved in in Judaism, and we want to be like church people. That's basically what they wanted to do. It's it was anti-religious. I mean, there's the famous Trafe and Asuda, the, uh, the 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 graduation dinner in in uh, in, Pit, in was it Philadelphia or Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. The Trafe and Asuda, where they had the frogs' legs, and they had every single course was Trafe than the last one. And uh, yeah, it's not like that anymore. It's different. It's it's different. Now it's now it's now it's 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 it's, it's completely different to, to to what it is then. So the the Vilna gone and. And and and, he, and the misnagdim against the Hasidim, they stopped fighting because there was another. There was other things to go. There was other things to go on. It wasn't really a common enemy. It was there was just other things to focus on, and they sort of like realized what was what was right and what wasn't right, and what what is the best way to do it. And the best way is just to, to to accept each other, and that's probably the best way to do it. And now Hasidim, Lithuanians, misnagdim, they just live together. Now it's normal. You know, I went to one of the premier Lithuanian yeshivas in the world. Gate to Shiva, which has approximately 35-40% Hasidim in it. Um, and it's an Ashkenazi Shiva, Lithuanian, old school, Nevadok Yeshiva, and it's about yeah, 35-40% Hasidim, and all different sects and all different types of Hasidim from all around the world. And in fact, Hasidim clamor to get into to Gate City Shiva. So, you know, it's changed. It's not the same way that it was now. Right, for our last one. For our last one, we're going to look at something which I know is going to be a bit... Everything I say is controversial, but... Um, this is a bit more touchy than the other ones, because this is closer to home. We're now going to look at Jewish people who are anti-Zionist versus Jewish people who are Zionists. Now... There, I've had a bit on the Notori Carter website, which is interesting since they banned the internet. Um, <laughs> they banned the use of the internet, so it's very interesting to me that they have a website. But anyway, they do. Notori Carter are a fringe of a fringe group of Satmar Hasidim mainly, but not only Satmar Hasidim, who oppose the state of Israel. They are the modern day anti Zionists, but anti Zionism is not a new thing. Anti Zionism. As be, from religious anti-Zionism goes back to the days of when Zionism was born. As soon as the idea of moving back to the land of Israel and becoming and, and Jewish nationalism became a thing, there was opposition to it from very very senior rabbis and not just crazy ones as well. Very senior rabbis were against it. Now, the Notori Carter website states four reasons for the, their opposition to Zionism. And we'll have a look at this. First, it says, the so-called state of Israel is diametrically opposed and completely contradictory to the true essence and foundation of the people of Israel. 
people were permitted to have a state 2,000 years ago when the glory of the Creator was upon us, and likewise in the future when the glory of the Creator will once more be revealed. However, in a worldly state like those possessed in other peoples, this is contradictory to the true essence of the people of Israel. Whoever calls this the salvation of the Israel shows that he denies the essence of the people of Israel and substitutes another nature, a worldly materialistic nature, and therefore sets before them a worldly materialistic salvation, and the means of achieving this salvation is also worldly and materialistic, i.e. to organize a land and an army. However, the true salvation of the people of Israel is to draw close to the Creator. This is not done by organization or force of arms, rather it is done by occupation to Torah and good deeds. Okay, so they, op they oppose the state of Israel on the grounds that this is not what we do. We, we are waiting for the Mashiach, and we shouldn't be chasing nationalism, which is a non-Jewish ideal. We should be studying the Torah. Second of all, their, their second reason is the Torah forbids them to end the exile and establish a state and an army. That's, that is a particular uh, Satmar thing, which we're not going to look at tonight because that's a whole hour sheer in itself. The third one, the deeds of the Zionists are diametrically opposed to the faith in the Torah because the foundation of the faith in the Torah of Israel is that the Torah was revealed from heaven and they, they deny that. The, the Zionists deny this idea. Fourth, aside from the fact that they themselves do not obey the Torah, they do everything they can to prevent anyone they get under their power from fulfilling the commandments of the Torah. And the claims to freedom of religion are lies and they fight with all of their strength to destroy the faith of Israel. Right, those are the, the, the four arguments laid out by the uh, Notorikata. Now, three of those arguments are not their own, and one of them is. The second one, if um, the Torah forbidding the people to end the exile, that's a particular argument, and it's not for now. That's a sheer on itself. The other three are theological reasons for, of, about, same story, about the Hasidim and the Misnakim, the dilution and the imposition of non-Jewish values into Torah, into Judaism. And that, that is and that is their problem. Zionism, on the other hand, says no, it's the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the Jewish dream. It's the fulfillment of the, the dream that we can go back to the land of Israel and, and we can uh, perform many of the mitzvot that you can't perform outside the land of Israel. And therefore it's a, it's it's a good thing to have the, the land of Israel and it's uh, the start of our redemption. We're obviously not redeemed yet. And if we we'd rather live under a Jewish state, uh, uh, that even though it is not the perfect Jewish state because it's a rather secular Jewish state but it'll be, you know, that's, so this is the idea of the religious Zionists this is a very good thing and as uh, outlined by Ralph Cook um, who came up with a very novel idea that anything is good is must be from Hashem and therefore because the state of Israel is good for the Jewish people then it must be given to us by Hashem this is the, the debate between the Zionists and the anti-Zionists. Now, we all in here, I'm sure, big Zionists, you JNF donors and, and, and all that, UIA, and all, all, uh, all, all manner of, of supporters of Zionism and things. I have to tell you, when I grew up, I wasn't an anti-Zionist, but it, was just, it just sort of wasn't a thing. You know, I just didn't talk about it. Because it just, it just it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, wasn't on, on, on the agenda. I was studying Torah. I wasn't, I wasn't, a Zionist and I wasn't against Israel we went to Israel on holiday but it wasn't just you know it wasn't like a, and I didn't have an ideology and for me like a Zionist was like a chalutznik right someone digging up the land and draining swamps and things like that you know I'm not that type of guy <laughs> just uh, you know okay I like Israel it's good but it's not if that's and that's how I grew up now nowadays unfortunately through 
mainly through uh, through opposition to Zionism, I've become I've become a Zionist, <laughs> mainly from fighting with with uh, BDS and and various other things. And of course, uh, my family live in Israel. I'm very proud of my brothers who served in the army, and I'm, you know I pray for Israel every day. And, and of course, I'm I'm what anyone else would call a Zionist, um, but I do recognise that some of these claims that are made by these anti-Zionists have got some substance to it, right? We can't, we can't readily you know, deny that a secular state of Israel is not, against, is not in line with the Torah. Now, the state of Israel itself is not very secular. If you have a look at it, I mean, all uh, the religious courts run a lot of the, you know, births, deaths and marriages are all run through the, the religious courts. Um, I've told stories many times of, of the, the IDF asking Shilas of, of the chief rabbi. Um, I remember this, uh, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. In 2014, at the chief rabbi's conference in London, um, it was just after the last, the last Gaza uh, war, and the chief rabbi Lau, the, the current chief rabbi Lau, not his father, current chief rabbi Lau, um, was the guest speaker. At this, the chief rabbi's conference, which is a big deal, and he spoke in Hebrew and he spoke um, for a long time about, I, you know, war, about being a rabbi in charge of a war, and he spoke of all the the different questions he was asked by the chief of staff and by army 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 uh, generals, asking questions of rabbis in order to, uh, to determine whether they should go to war on Shabbos or not. Could they fly planes on Shabbos? Did they have to go down tunnels to chase things? Or uh, to chase soldiers who may have been kidnapped and maybe they're not dead or they are dead and all sorts of all sorts of things so these these things happen of course um the the state of israel runs the shemitah program the 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 Beistin and the uh the hetemachira these things are done through the the state of israel so the, the rabbanut is very much part of the state of israel so i don't think that the state of israel is an entirely secular thing so therefore i don't agree with the anti-Zionists from that that point of view, but they have some they have some points. There are some certain things which go on in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, and have gone on in the state of Israel, which fall into these things. And one of them I'd like to draw to your attention. Um, in, in 1949 was Operation Magic Carpet, um, the Jews of Yemen, um, <coughs> Jews in Yemen, and there was a lot of children who disappeared. Uh, the the Yemenite children, I think one in eight children under the age of three disappeared. Now, many of them got sick and died, but a lot of them were taken and forcibly given to families who didn't have any children, who were secular, and chopped their payers off and put them with families who were irreligious. And I have a friend in, in Manchester, um, and him and his brother, they lost, the, one of the, their sister was one of the children who disappeared, and they've, they've never seen her since. They, 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 they don't know what happened to their sister, and they're still searching for their sister. And many times, it was the, you know, Yemenite children were given to families who, who, who didn't have any children. And, and hmm? it, was not, it wasn't to religious families. It was specifically not to religious families. So a lot of times, people, they're trying to you know, implement this uh, idea of secularism into, into people. Now, I'm not saying that, that that happens all the time. That's a particular example of it, but it does happen. It certainly does happen. And there's this idea of secularism. I had a friend who... Uh, he was in a unit in the army, and they, his he was a he was a thing, and he was he didn't want to drive on Yom Kippur. If he had if he had to drive, he's in the army, right? He had to drive on Yom Kippur, and 
he told me that they sent him on a, a, a wild goose chase to make him drive on Yom Kippur, even though you know, even though there wasn't actually anything there, they sent him off there to drive just so they could say that they got him to drive on Yom Kippur when he didn't need to. I mean, there's, there's things like that. I'm not saying that that's an institutionalized thing, but these these arguments have some truth to them. Now, I don't agree with them. That's it. I don't agree with any of it. I don't agree with all of it. But I can't honestly stand here and tell you that they're, they're not completely wrong. Robert, is it correct to assume, and I might be wrong, that the essential difference is about our redemption? And the Satma believes that our redemption can only come yeah, so that's the other that's the other one, the the, the bit that we're not talking about. So we'll talk about that another time. There's there's a whole hour's worth of shiur on that. Yeah, that's a, a main thing. But the other the, so their other point is that that's their one point that you can't force the redemption upon us. But the 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 main point that they're making is the secularism and the imposition of secular secular values into Judaism. And that that I can I can understand where they're coming from. I don't agree with them. But I, don't, and I know where they're coming from. And that is an argument that, ca- that continues. That's an argument, and I think that's how we're going to have to finish. We're going to have to finish with an argument that hasn't finished yet. But what, what we can do is, if we look back through these three sessions that we've done, on all the ones that we've done, there are, there, except for this one, there's solutions. There's a solution to the argument. Even in the case of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, in the case of the Vilna Gaon, in going back all the way to Cain and Abel, there's a solution if you want to find it. it's up to us the people to give in a little like this now right I understand where the Satma are coming from I don't agree with them but I still understand where they're coming from we can either fight and go and and, and carry on and perpetuate the the thing or we can step back a bit and give in we can have if we have a look at all those different arguments that went on Yaakov and Esau and and, uh, the brothers Yosef and the brothers and all the other ones that we spoke about, the, the different factions in, in the, the times of the temple and the Hashmonaim and, uh, and all that sort of stuff, we can, we can see patterns and we can see things that we can learn from it. Uh, and, you know, as we go into Rosh Hashanah, we get a chance to have a new start. We get a chance to say, do you know what? We can be like Ephraim and Menashe and say, yeah, I don't want any part of that. We can, we can stand aside and we can say, it's not worth it. I don't want to do it. I'd rather be happy than be right. And we can go off into we can go off into our lives as 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 fulfilled people. And I think that's probably the best thing to do.